It'll be useful if you've got those uh, handouts in front of you, and um, if you've got a Bible with you, you might want to turn uh, to John chapter 15. I'm going to be thinking this morning about this phrase. Uh, some of the translations use abide in Christ, some remain in Christ. Uh, I'm going to use the phrase abide in Christ this morning. A little bit of a survey. Is there anyone here who has lived in the same house for their entire life? Anybody at all? No? It's not very common these days, is it? <laughs> is anyone here who's lived in three or less houses in their life? Yeah? few people? few people? Yeah? Three or less houses. Is there anyone who's lived in five or less houses? Yeah, that would include me. Um, yeah, quite popular. Is there anyone who's lived in more than 10 houses in their life? Yeah, quite a few. Quite a few. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's one house in particular that perhaps you have a special attachment to. Uh, maybe your first home after you uh, left uh, your parents' home. Maybe your first married home. Maybe the home where you brought up your children. Maybe a home that just has special memories of some kind you. Homes are often places of security, places of rest, and places of hospitality. And we value them and we cherish them for those kinds of reasons. What's interesting, of course, is that over the past two years during the pandemic, our relationship with our home has changed. Very often, homes have become places of work, not rest, become places of safety and refuge, not hospitality. But we all look for a place we can call home, a place where we can rest, be at peace, feel secure, and where we can enjoy food and drink and hopefully share that with others. Uh, my mother-in-law, who has, uh, has dementia, lived in the same little village in South Wales for how long? About 70 years? 90 years. Well, yeah, 90 years, yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's all right. Eighty will do. <laughs> uh, and a couple of years ago, because of her dementia, she moved up to live with her, her other daughter in, in, in Buxton. And she just cannot get the idea that this is where she now lives. And she always uses this phrase, practically every conversation, doesn't she? I'm of no fixed abode, she says. I'm of no fixed abode. And the damage to her brain has made her lose that sense of, of home. I get exactly the same when I speak to my dad who lives in a care home in Cardiff. They cannot face calling that home because home is a place of rest, a place of peace, a place of hospitality. Jesus talks in this passage about abiding in him, living in him. And I wonder this morning if we explore what that means, if we can come to a point of recognizing the importance of what it means, if we're going to have a fruitful life that starts with a fruitful relationship with God, if we can discover what it really means to abide in Christ. When Jesus encourages us to abide in him, he's speaking to us personally. He's speaking to us about finding our rest in him. He's speaking about finding our peace in him. He's speaking about finding our security in him. He's speaking about finding our food and drink in him. He's speaking about sharing out of him, out of his love. 
He's speaking about what it means to be deeply connected to Christ so that no matter what our life circumstances, the fruit of that relationship will bring forth fruit in our lives. So I want to start by asking you that question this morning. Do you know what it means to abide in Christ? Are you trusting the bricks and mortar of your life? your family and your finances, your health, your circumstances? Or do you find your security, your rest, your peace somewhere other than the things of this world, the material things that we can feel and touch? Do you know the security, the rest, and the hospitality of the Lord Jesus that comes from abiding in him? I just want to explore what that might mean for our lives this morning through a series of questions. First question is, what does it mean to abide in Christ? The second question is going to be, how? How do I abide in Christ? And then the third question, what are the consequences of abiding in Christ? So let's tackle that first question. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Tim has used that phrase a couple of times recently. You can only love what you know. You cannot love what you do not know. And the basis of abiding in Christ is to know God as he really is. We cannot trust someone we don't know. We cannot put our faith, the security and peace uh, and to provide all that we need in someone we do not know. There's a really interesting conversation that takes place in the chapter prior to chapter 15. In chapter 14, Jesus engages in a conversation with Philip, one of his disciples. Philip had been around Jesus for three years. He'd uh, he'd heard Jesus' teaching. He'd seen how Jesus uh, interacted with people, all sorts of people from all strata of society. He'd, uh, He'd seen Jesus last thing at night when he went to bed. He'd seen Jesus first thing in the morning when he got up. He knew what Jesus' favorite food was. He thought he knew a lot about Jesus, but he enters into a conversation with Jesus, and and the amazing thing is that even though he'd been with him for three years and spent his life with him, he says, I don't know you, Jesus. I don't know who you are. I want to know God, but I don't know how I can know God. And Jesus, in chapter 14, verse 9, and the verses on the handout, says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Jesus is almost exasperated there. He says, Philip, you mean to say you've been with me for three years and you still don't know who I am? And if you don't know who I am, how can you trust me? And Jesus has been talking about how he is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he has to say to Philip, Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? He's saying, I mean, that's a clear statement of divinity, by the way. People say, oh, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Of course he claimed to be God. Everyone who heard him say that would have understood what he was claiming. He's claiming to be one with the Father. He's claiming to be God. And he's saying to Philip, don't you know that? Don't you know that? Because unless you know that, you can never know what it means to abide in me. I wonder if there's anyone in that position this morning. Perhaps you've been around church, maybe like Philip for three years, maybe for longer, maybe for shorter. You've heard the teaching, you've seen the ministry, you've observed the lifestyle of the leaders and the congregation. You've picked up a certain amount of information about Jesus, 
But do you know Jesus as he really is? Do you know God as he really is? Sometimes even our children discover that before us. I had a beautiful little incident with Lydia uh, the other week. Uh, I'd taken her to pets at home, and uh, we were buying dog food for our dog, Millie, and I said, right, we're going to go home now and see Millie because she's been on her own all, all, all the time we've been out. And Lydia piped up to me. She said, uh, no, she hasn't been on her own. God has been with her. But then the follow-up line was stunning. She said, and Jesus has been with her. God and Jesus are the same person you know. <laughs> That's from a three-year-old. <laughs> a well-taught three-year-old, I should say. God and Jesus are the same person, you know. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, the Father and me are the same person. So if you see me, you see the Father. If you know me, you can know God. So if we're going to abide in Christ, we need to know God as he really is. And uh, John, writing a letter that he wrote after the gospel, talks about this in a little bit more detail. Verses are there on the handout again. In chapter 4, verse 15 of one of his letters, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, they come to abide in Christ. Two aspects to that. We have to know that Jesus is the Son of God, but we have to confess it. That is... Jesus is not talking about a privatized religion here, a personal belief. He's talking about a belief that we understand so well that we are willing to confess it publicly, to stand up for it, to put our reputation on it. If you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, then he will be Lord. But you have to believe it, you have to know it, and you have to confess it. And then the second uh, way he says we can abide in Christ is uh, verse 13, where it says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Why? Because he has given us of his spirit. So to continue to abide in Christ, we need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And of course, that's the promise that Jesus is making to the disciples in these chapters that we're going to see as we go along through these chapters of John. He promises that even though he's going to go away and go back to his father, that he is going to send his Holy Spirit. And John says here, it's because he's given us his spirit that we can abide in Christ. So to abide in Christ means, first of all, to know God as he really is, and then to know his presence and his work in us through his Holy Spirit. Our culture values agnosticism, doubt, the equality of all opinions. Jesus didn't. To these people's agnosticism, he doesn't say, well, that's okay, just carry on believing that. He challenges that, and he says, look, you say you don't know me. Here's the evidence. Think about it and work it out. If in doubt, sort it out, is what I would say. That is, if you have doubts, that's okay. But let's not just hide behind our doubts. Let's be willing to say, so I'm interested in finding out how to resolve this doubt. And I think another problem some of us have is that we just don't believe we can change. Well, we can't change, but God can change us. Some of us have found a, a, a state of, of relationship with God where we're comfortable. 
Maybe that's agnosticism. Maybe it's atheism. Maybe it's something in between. Maybe it's a place of, of kind of distance where we want God to keep his distance from our lives. And we kind of get comfortable in that position and we just don't believe anymore that we can change. But, but this is what abiding in Christ is. It means to change. It means to become close to Christ. There's no abiding without commitment. A bit of Jesus is not enough to learn what it means to abide in him. So if you want to live a fruitful life, the basis of that is a fruitful relationship with God. And Jesus defines a fruitful relationship with God as abiding in Christ, as knowing him, both in terms of who he is and of his presence in our lives. So let's tackle the second question. How do I abide in Christ? Well, to abide in Christ, we need to rest in God's work in our lives. When we ask how, there's a danger that we turn the question into, so what have I got to do? What rules have I got to follow? What new method have I got to learn? What ministry have I got to get involved in? What book have I got to read? What group have I got to join? As though doing something will lead us into this experience of abiding in Christ. Now, of course, while none of those things are bad in themselves, there is something we have to learn first before we throw ourselves into activity. We need to learn that to abide in Christ means, first of all, to rest in God's work in our lives. Abiding is not achieved, it is received. Abiding in Christ is not the result of our work for God, but the result of God's work for us. Just as our homes should be places of rest where we can serve and work, so abiding in Christ is primarily working from a place of rest. Not a physical place, but a place where we are at rest spiritually because of what God has done for us. Two beautiful verses from the Old Testament I've just put there on the, uh, on the handout. Psalm 25, verse 13. David says this, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Isn't that a lovely phrase? His soul shall abide in well-being. We hear a lot about well-being today, don't we? Emotional well-being, mental well-being, physical well-being. There's a whole load of industries that have grown up around promoting the idea of well-being, of making us more rounded people, of getting work balance right. Again, those are not bad things in themselves, but if you are someone who knows God, if you are someone who wants to have a fruitful relationship with God and live a fruitful life, then your spiritual well-being is foundational to that. Does your soul abide well this morning? Are you entering into the inheritance that he speaks about? Not the inheritance of a physical land, as Israel would have understood it in the Old Testament, but the inheritance of entering into the promises of Christ, of the work he wants to do in our lives. And Isaiah 32, verse 18, that other verse conveys a similar idea. When we abide in Christ, says Isaiah, people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Abiding means to be at peace, to be secure, to be able to rest. Probably the most famous uh, passage of the Bible is Psalm 23, 
We often read it at funerals. And of course, that psalm ends with those words, doesn't it? About dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. I often think that we perhaps take that out of context, actually, because what David is talking about is he's not talking about a promised home in heaven for anyone and everyone. He's talking about a position of spiritual rest for those who have made the Lord their shepherd. That is, for those who've entered into a personal relationship with him. And this is the, what Christ is, is pointing us to here. He's pointing us to that place where we can find true rest in him. Our memory verse points us in that direction, doesn't it? In that description of the vine and the branches. We've got the idea that the branches cannot be fruitful unless they're attached to the vine. A branch detached from the vine cannot possibly bear fruit. We might also get the image of branches being connected to the vine and the branches drawing the life-giving sap out of the vine that enables them to be fruitful. I don't think that's quite right, actually. I think the more accurate image is not of the sap being drawn up by the branch, but of the vine drawing the sap from the ground and feeding it into the branch. There's a subtle difference, you see. It's not the branch doing the work, almost sucking it up. It's the vine feeding it into the branch. It's the vine that draws up the sap. It's the vine that channels the sap into the branch. And that is what enables the branch to bear fruit. God bears fruit through you when you make yourself available as a channel for his life. God doesn't bear fruit in you by you trying really hard to get the strength to do good things for God. And it's a subtle but important difference. Happen to how many of us see our service, our ministry, our work as all about us. And I speak to myself as much as to anyone here. I wonder how many of us find that it's our methods and our creativity that we spend so much time investing in, in our ministry. We never have time to actually rest in God and allow him to feed us with the life-giving sap of his presence and power. That comes through communion with Christ. And communion with Christ is primarily about just opening our lives to receive the sap of his word, to receive the, the strength of his power through prayer, to receive the encouragement and fellowship of his people as we meet together. So I wonder how your soul is this morning. Is it in a place of well-being? Is it well with your soul, as that wonderful old hymn says? Are you at peace this morning? Not because of your circumstances, but because you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, the one who's made peace with God on your behalf. Have you learned the importance of resting in Christ's finished work on the cross for your salvation and the insurances he gives that he will bring that work to completion when we abide in him? That is how we abide in Christ today. And finally, what are the consequences of abiding in Christ? Well, the main consequence is that we see glory, God's glory at work through us. Verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
Maybe the one of the reasons we find it so hard to rest is that so much of our work, whatever form it takes, is about us. It's about our reputation, it's about our glory, it's about our well-being. And when our work takes on that level of importance, where it becomes the means by which we find value and significance and reputation, it becomes impossible to abide in Christ. As we just sung in that wonderful hymn, what is our value? Where do we find our value? John points us to the antidote for this. He points to us abiding in Christ and bearing much fruit. And he says that comes about when instead of it all being about us, it all becomes about God and about seeing God's glory at work through us. Ministry is not about building our little kingdoms where we reign, where everything happens on our our terms and no one else is allowed in, let alone the Holy Spirit. Ministry is about God being glorified. True fruitfulness is not about numbers and popularity. It's about the extent to which our ministry and our lives glorify God. That's fruitfulness. That's what Jesus is saying. This is how my Father's glorified, by you bearing much fruit. Fruit is about the extent to which we glorify God in our lives. And he also says, this is how you prove to be my disciples as well. So this is for everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. That claim is proved, interesting he uses that word, is proved by the bearing of fruit. And the bearing of fruit is to bring glory to God. And Jesus gives us a little checklist here, actually, about how we can discern if our lives and our ministry are abiding in Christ. In these verses, there's a a little checklist. He says, first of all, it's based on a relationship with Christ. That is, that we have to abide in him. Secondly, it's based on the teaching of his word. My words have to abide in you. And thirdly, it's based on dependence in prayer, asking and seeing God answer our prayers. And if those three conditions are met, if we have a personal relationship with Christ, if we're basing our lives on the teaching of his word, and if we're basing our lives on dependence in prayer, then we will bear fruit, and that is how we will glorify God. Just a little sidebar here about prayer, because that verse has often confused people. You know, where Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You know, you rip that out of context and, you know, it can mean anything, can't it? You know, <laughs> some people will say, well, that, that's, that's rubbish. I ask for lots of things and God never gives them to me. And then other people will say, well, how come I'm a Christian and I ask for things and I don't always get what I want? But of course, when Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, there's a context, there's a context here. And the context is abiding in Christ. You see, if you're abiding in Christ, then all you want is God's glory. And so if your prayers are focused on God's glory rather than our personal desires, then God is saying, yes, I will answer those prayers. What I want in you is for you to be fruitful. I want you to glorify me. And those are the prayers that God answers when we seek his fruit in our lives, when we seek to glorify him, not ourselves. And that's why Jesus says in verse 8, this is how my Father is glorified. This is how you will bear much fruit, by abiding in Christ. You know, these disciples were going to face really tough circumstances. In the next three days, as Jesus was tried and crucified, 
and in the days after as they ministered in Jesus' name, taking the gospel to all the world. So there's a context here. Jesus is preparing them for what's to come. And he's saying, if you're going to get through these next three days with this ultimate trauma, if you're going to get through the coming years of being my disciples, you're going to have to learn what it means to abide in me. And I think God would be saying the same to us this morning. If we want to get through these weeks, you know, as Tim has shared with us, if we want to get through what could be difficult circumstances, then the answer is not to look to the circumstances. The answer is to look to Christ and to abide in Christ. To know Christ as he really is. To rest in his work in our lives. And to seek above all else the fruit of his glory to be seen in us and through us. Let's pray together, shall we? So, Lord, we would pause as we allow your word to sink into our minds and our hearts, and we would ask in these moments that the Holy Spirit would bring what is really critical for us at this time. Uh, Lord, you know where we're at in our relationship with you, and you know the extent to which we know you or don't know you. You know our doubts, our securities, and we pray, Lord, that in these moments, your word will come to us afresh. For those who don't yet know you, we pray, Lord, that they will open their lives to receive you. For those who are finding life very stressful at the moment and busy, may they be able to take a step back and rest in the security of Christ's work on the cross. And for those who are working so hard to build themselves a life of their own making, may they be able to see beyond that to the God who wants to reflect his glory in them and seek that rather than things achieved by their own strength. So may we all discern the way we want to respond to this message this morning so that our lives may honor and glorify you. Amen.